welcome to our podcast, All About the Car. Brought to you by Sherrill Tire and Service, I'm your host, Rob Hoffman, an auto service specialist with over 46 years of industry experience. On the ride with me today, our regular guest, Brian Call, a 42-year veteran of the automotive industry. Hello, Brian. Hey, Rob. It's great to be back. Missed the last few. Oh, good to see you here, Brian. And Bill Sherrill, a guy that logs a lot of miles behind the wheel in Wisconsin and always has a lot of great questions. Welcome back, Bill. Thank you. Great to be on the road. Today, we have two very special guests on the drive, Anello Malika and Paul Graham of the famed Central Waters Brewing Company. Welcome, guys. How you doing, gentlemen? Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for allowing us to be in your facility today. We're kind of your guests. Well, we're going to fill a couple more seats on the bus today, so let's hop in, buckle up, and hit the road. So, Anello and Paul, are you co-owners? Yes. <laughs> You're giving each other the look, yes. and uh, I yes, think that's are. what we are. <laughs> well, yes, both of us. So I wasn't sure, you know, did you want us to reply in unison or, you know. That would be <laughs> It was good. a timing thing. Just what you did was okay. That's yeah. totally fine. Paul, I saw it written that you are the brewmaster. I don't really call myself that anymore. For a long time, I was. I handled all the recipe design, the manufacturing production-wise, but in the last decade or so, I've become pretty hands-off on the brewing process. So I've moved more into the administrative side and honestly, a lot of equipment installs, projects, maintenance, stuff like that. I'm the type of guy that'd rather be turning a wrench than sitting behind a keyboard or... Okay, kind of a hands-on guy? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it sounds, I mean, the brewmaster sounds like a dream job to me. Curious, in the early days, what qualifications did you have to have to be the brewmaster? <laughs> what did well, you have to do to get there? Trial by fire, really. There's only two of us working, and one of us was doing the beer. Yeah, yeah. And that was a title I never gave myself. So, head brewer was usually it. Okay. You know, brewmaster is, I mean, technically with the experience and the knowledge that I have, I could probably be called that, but I still don't because I don't have a formal education. So it has been trial by fire. And when we got into this, there was only at the time two schools that were even doing classes for professional brewing. Oh, wow. So it's a lot more common these days, but at least two schools in the U.S. And what year was that that you actually started jumping? Your next question may be history, but I thought. Yeah. So. I started at Central Waters in August of 1998. So I was technically the first employee of the brewery, the first paid employee. (laughs) And that was in Junction City, right? Oh, yeah. The booming metropolis of Junction City. So Anello came on board shortly after that. Yeah. So six months later. Yep. Something like that. So you two must get along pretty well. Well, we knew each other for quite a while (laughs) prior to this. That wasn't our first introduction. Paul and I have been buddies since... 1994. Oh, cool. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I think we met the first week of college. I think so. So Freshman year in college. Fall of 94. Yeah. Yep. Well, you guys are definitely my heroes. I'm going to tell you right now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. I'm scared to think how many years ago that was. I was 18 years old. Yeah. But now neither of you are the founders of Central Waters Brewing. No. No. Stewards. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Two great guys actually started the company. They started forming this idea and kind of upping their homebrew game back in 1996 and kicked around the idea. And Jerome Ebel and Mike McCallowin were the original owners. They started the company with essentially pocket change. So the building was purchased in Junction City for $5,000. You get what you pay for. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) So obviously it took a ton of renovation. 
Jerome and I get are a lot alike. We like to fabricate. We like to build things. So Jerome actually fabricated a basically an overglorified homebrew system that allowed them to launch the company for forty thousand dollars. Wow! Wow! So. Mike was sort of a more of a silent partner. He had a full-time gig and Jerome ran the show and they brought me on in August to help out in production. And eventually I quit my full-time job and came on full-time with the brewery by December of that year. And then Anello came on the following spring, I think. I think it was spring. Yeah. 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 And then we worked together for a while and you and left, left again. Yeah. The company couldn't pay both of us, however the five dollars an hour or whatever we were making business. i think five and a quarter was i think it wage. was five yeah. and a quarter oh, yeah right, right around yeah and yeah i couldn't afford to pay us both that so this was back when do you remember isidore street brewing company yes yeah no, so not, it, underneath well it was kind of it was old alibi oh geez i knew it as a pizza pit and yeah, alibi was it was like a hockey pit. bar yeah. right yeah. That's what I'm trying to think of the name of what the bar was. Because Pizza Pit was the pizza joint. And I can't remember the name of the bar. Well, at that point, Isidore Street was up and running. So when I left Central Waters, I went to Isidore Street. And I brewed there for, I don't know, maybe another six months until they closed up. And then I ended up... became an apartment building. Became an apartment yeah. building. <laughs> yeah. And then I ended up at Point Brewery. And then Paul and I remained very good friends this entire time. I don't know. I'm kind of jumping ahead on the history here. Do you want to talk about how that progressed while I was out? Oh, gallivanting in your... Philandering myself <laughs> about the beer scene. Yeah, so I was the first one hired by Mike and Jerome, so they kept me instead of Anello. And starting that business for pocket change, they were scared to go to the bank. They were scared to pull out money and invest more in because the craft beer industry back in 98, 99 is nothing like what people see it as today. You were kind of charting new waters, so to say, really. Yeah, 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 definitely. And this was pre-internet. So it's not like you knew what was going on in the rest of the nation because we didn't have that information. I like to tell people about how you know, our first bumper sticker had our phone number on it. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I love it. But it had to back then. Yeah. Like, how do you get a hold of Central Waters? Yeah. It's not like Call. you can hop on Google. You got to have a phone book with junction city in it right so yeah i mean the biggest thing on our bumper sticker was our phone number (laughs) (laughs) yeah there were no emails going on you would come in and you'd spend half an hour listening to the answering machine yeah yeah answering the facts wow yeah we didn't even have a fax machine back then yeah Yeah. (laughs) paper invoices you know i mean it was yeah it was a nightmare (laughs) but we ramped up that brewery to full production based on the same on the size of the system and i kept pushing Jerome, who was my boss at the time, hey, we got to grow. The demand is there. The demand's there. We got to do it. And they were kind of unwilling to invest more into the company. And so I talked them pretty much into selling. We ran about a year with that transition in the works. And I partnered up with a different homebrewing buddy of mine. And we bought the company in January of 2001 for a grand whopping total of $105,000. Yeah. Yeah. So... But we're food-related. Beer is considered a food, so it's high risk when it comes to banks. And money is definitely, back then, because of the industry, was non-existent, essentially. It was dying. I mean, I think that was a general consensus in the industry in the late 90s and early 2000s was craft beer was a fad. Kind of exploded in the early to mid-90s with lots of brew pubs popping up everywhere. And then just started to fade out into the late 90s, which is when Central Waters opened, when the 
prevailing beer consensus then was craft beer was going to kind of peter out. Yeah. With how Especially does. coming out of Junction City, Wisconsin. Yeah. 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 Not in Where a the large heck is, metro yeah. market. Where the heck is Junction of, City, you know? Yeah, a lot of <laughs> taste quality people in the craft brewing. We were a speed bump on Highway 10. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right, right past the railroad track. Yeah. Yep. 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 So sometimes people were forced to stop in front of our building because of the railroad. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love it. <laughs> Train would stop cars and they'd be right there. That's a marketing tool. Or they were stopped because I don't know, we dumped a pallet of bottles off the truck or yeah. grain yeah. is laying everywhere. Yeah, how else are you gonna make news, <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> Get on TV. Those were tough days. I'm we're not gonna lie to you. So how'd you push your product out in those early days? Where was it being consumed? Is it Stevens Point, yeah. Marshfield? Yeah, it was mostly central Wisconsin, a couple of accounts in Wausau, some Wisconsin Rapids accounts, and then when did we start Madison? Madison was our first major market outside of central well, Wisconsin. You yeah, we mean? started that late. We had one account in Eau Claire early on. They don't drink beer in Madison, do they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But this is also back when we did self-distribution, getting to your car point. I'm curious. Right? I'm curious. <laughs> yeah. Yes. We had a range of vehicles that we used to do self-distribution over the years. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So what was the first one? Your personal car, I'm going to assume. 100%. Exactly. (laughs) One of my favorite stories is Anello and I were living together with another friend when I bought the business in 2001. And I was driving a sport red two-door Honda Civic. Well, there's a lot of room in that truck. Commercial (laughs) delivery vehicle, I can tell. I forgot about that car. Yeah. I love that car. (laughs) Yeah. The Red Rocket. The Red Rocket. Nice. Our yeah. favorite thing to do was go storm chasing with that car. Yeah. 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 <laughs> There'd be like summer stormers and Paul and I just jump in their car and go chase them down. Cool. Yeah. Love yeah. It. Love it. <laughs> but at the same time, we were delivering beer with it. You know, so Wits End on the north side of Point oh, was right. a yeah. big live music scene back in the day, back in the 90s. They were our first supporter, first people to pull on our kegs. Everything we produced, they'd keep on tap. Nice. So literally, them and Club 10 were the first two bars to keep us going who was the owner of club 10 at that point was it bob yeah yeah Yeah. but bob's a great guy too so and for actually in the initial process of finding a building the basement of club 10 was first considered so bob and jerome had talked quite a bit darn it would have been closer to my house (laughs) (laughs) i could have walked home (laughs) they would have had to (laughs) so yeah we were constantly delivering kegs especially those two accounts so when I took over with old acquaintance of mine. I would some days have to throw half barrels into the Honda Civic. Love you it. Know? Love it. Two door. So <laughs> let me tell you. Getting- wow. Well, I mean, it was a hatchback. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So it was easier. <laughs> but getting those into the back seat, you had yeah. to go through the passenger door and over the seat that was folded at a 45 degree angle forward. So that car owed you nothing at the end. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That lasted that about first. two months. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Was it a white pickup after that? Yeah. Yeah. The white pickup that we named Carl. Yeah. That's right. Carl compared to the Red Rocket and was kind of the gentle giant. Yeah. 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 A real funny white pickup. It had the uh, plastic white Texas bumper. A spoiler so was, on the top yeah. of the... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it was kind of a hot pickup. Yeah. yeah. Nice. So, Did Carl take you to Madison? Yes. Well, oh. that's one of the funniest stories we have about distribution with that thing is one of our first package accounts was a place called Star Laker. And they're still in business today. It was Star Laker and Riley's Liquor were kind of our first two major accounts down there to sell our beer in six packs. Well, back then, our six packs 
I don't know if you guys remember this, were brown cardboard boxes, like closed top brown cardboard boxes. Our labels were just pressure sensitive stickers. And we would just slap that sticker on the brown cardboard box of what beer was inside of it, right? That's all we could afford to do. So the accounts on there would run out of the beer and they would, we would call them on a telephone and take it <laughs> a landline, a landline, what you're saying. A landline telephone to take oh, an funny. order. And then we'd say, okay, we're going to try to come down on Friday, weather permitting. So they would have to tell their customers that we're not sure if we're going to get Central Waters and it looks like rain. <laughs> because we couldn't. No, yeah, it was no, in the pickup there truck. No topper. There's there no, no topper no, for no. it. That was another $500. And believe me, yeah, I could not afford that. that. Yeah, that's <laughs> in the budget. So we would try to get those products out. But if it was raining or snowing or the cardboard was going to get wet, we couldn't go. And we'd have to wait until the day when it wasn't raining. Wow. You didn't even know that you were having this amazing strategic marketing of demand, like yeah, the sensitivity yeah. of demand. Ramping up demand because like, supply exactly was low like because yeah, nature yeah, gave us rain. Is what yeah. really doing, right? <laughs> and that was all by accident. I mean, we yeah. self-distributed out of necessity. I mean, that was the only way you could even come close to trying to make some Very reactive. Yeah. yeah. Th- that built relationships that you cannot build otherwise. That are still in place to this day. Yeah. Yep. I wow, mean, wow. Madison for a long time was my delivery. So for about four or five years, that was the only delivery I did, but that got me out of the brewery one day a week. And so I'd get to go down to Madison. Surprisingly, I'm rather introverted. So I didn't like it. So I didn't like having to interact with customers and retailers and stuff like that. But you'd walk into Riley's Wines of the World or Star Liquor and eventually Steve, stuff like that. And everybody was just, ah! It felt amazing. We'd hit five accounts, but it'd take all day because you'd sit there and have these long conversations about production and what are we doing? How's it going? And how are things at the liquor store? And it was literally probably more building relationships back then, just literally by being forced into that kind of helped really build our brand. Those relationships, without a doubt, helped tell our story. And nowadays, your story gets out so easily and so quickly. Whatever story you want to tell, back then it didn't. So it required that those Present. fans. Yeah, there was no social media right. back then. There was no lively internet scene back then, right? And so to a certain extent today, the same is still true. You know, what I tell my sales teams are, we're not out there trying to sell beer. We're out there to be a likable person that people want to carry the product from because there's so many options out there right? Back then, there weren't a lot of options. And so particularly in like an off-premise place, like a package store, if what Paul's telling happens, right? And like, they love you, they really like you, the customer has no idea. There's no social media. They walk into the store and that person's going to go, hey, you know what you should try? Central Waters, these guys up in Junction City are making this beer, try this six pack. And that drives sales. To a certain extent, that's still true today. And I think what a lot of brands miss is when you're out there trying to sell to like a bar, for example, The bar owner, while that person is important, is not the most important person in that chain. It's the bartender because that's the person that has a direct interaction with the customer, right? So those are the people that I'm trying to engage and do this same story to. So, yeah. So when did you move from, actually, what happened with Carl? Oh, yeah. Because (laughs) that's not complete Carl's life trajectory here. That's not the end of our car stories either. There was another vehicle post Carl. Right. Yeah. I'm hoping there was. Yes. Oh, boy. Yeah. I don't know what happened to Carl. I think it just did it die? No. I got us the minivan. No, the company bought the minivan. Yeah, I knew that. 
that was out of necessity. Like, why did we make that? I don't remember. <laughs> because we decided we needed something enclosed. Yeah. Okay. And we got the minivan for five hundred dollars. Nice. I, I do remember that. Yeah. Yes. On a payment plan. That fit the budget. <laughs> <laughs> that was in the budget. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, that was a beautiful purple town and country. Ripped all the seats out, so it was just turned into like a cargo minivan. Leather van. interior. I can't remember. Was that a? It was a mid nineties. Yeah, town I and country. So I don't remember. I drove it. Gosh, I drove that thing so much. <laughs> Life was getting I was better. Trying to remember what the record was for how much beer I'd put in that thing. Because, like, you would get it down where you'd look at your, especially if you're going to like Madison, you'd plan out your stop so that the first product you can reach is your first product coming out, right? I, I want to say it was like 110 cases and half a dozen half barrels we would put into there. That is far exceeding the weight. Limit. Oh, yeah. You made that a lowrider. Oh, <laughs> it was literally. <laughs> oh, it was scary. Like, yeah, the back yeah. of it was almost hitting the ground. <laughs> yeah. Steering was fact, real loose. <laughs> <laughs> You're literally talking 3,000, 3,500 pounds. In a minivan. In the back of a minivan. Yeah. Stacked to the ceiling. Wow. Yeah. Right. Yeah. One of my favorite stories about that minivan was when one of our employees made the Madison delivery. I was just going to tell the story. I know exactly the story you're talking about. Yep. We got a call. So when I bought the brewery, I was living with Anello and, and one other roommate. That roommate called us. This is years later. And he goes, is that one of you on the side of the road? I just passed a purple minivan with beer and kegs stacked everywhere on the side of the road. Oh, oh not a good call. Because he got a flat tire. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's where the spare is. Also, there's no way you would have jacked it up right. with all that weight oh, in the yeah. car. Good point. So he had to unload all of that beer on the side of the interstate just to get to the spare tire. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. That was always one of my biggest fears. Wasn't just that happening? Like, okay, that's not going to be pleasant. That's a lot of work. But more so when the trooper stops and goes, uh, you do have too much weight in that vehicle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. You're going to yeah. follow me to the way station. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We could have all sorts of conversations about that, but we don't need to go down that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think so. At this point. Yeah. Yeah. You guys had mentioned storm chasing earlier in the conversation. Really the early days of central waters brewing was a perfect storm. You guys, like Bill said, you didn't know it, but everything you were doing was leading to what we see today. Without a doubt. Yeah. Like I said already, those first nine years in Junction City were pure hell. It was hard. What few employees you had, like when Anello came back to work for me before he came on his ownership, I had to make sure he got paid for his hours, which means I sacrificed my pay. The craft beer industry hadn't taken off. And in the early 2000s, nobody thought it would. Distributors were still saying it's a fad. It's dying out. The boom of the 90s had happened, and that collapse came in the late 90s, again, when we were starting. And so it was advantageous to us because we were buying cheap equipment when we could find it. But I love getting those social security statements that go back and look at your income. (laughs) I had over four years that were under $8,000 in income, you know, and that's way below the poverty line. That's ramen noodles. Yeah, (laughs) literally, literally. And also back then, remember tap rooms, like what we're sitting in now, those did not exist. So you didn't have a direct revenue stream from customers coming in and purchasing pints of beer or beer to go. go. Yeah. That didn't really happen. When it did happen, it was like, woohoo. Like we had one customer who's still around today that would come in and pick up a couple growlers every week. And it was like, there's 20 bucks. So what was the passion around the product that kept you both going and to develop this? It's exactly that. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. 
there were times when we were in college together. We homebrewed together a lot in college. Yeah. And I don't know how many times we dreamed about it or talked about it. If, Doing this for a living. Man, if we could do this for a living, you know. I'm, I mean, we went from homebrewing in the dorms, <laughs> legitimately, to building a pretty nice homebrew system in our garage, gravity-fed homebrew system, and we were cranking out great beers and throwing house parties with our homebrews on tap, right? That had to be lucrative if you charged $5 for the glass. I don't or even know what dollar. it was back then. <laughs> At the time, it was Four almost bucks. more lucrative than the brewery. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it really was. Your overhead was real low. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, we came out of college with that passion, and we both graduated with degrees that have nothing directly related to our industry whatsoever. And it could be an argument that my counseling psychology degree works for dealing with distributors. (laughs) Oh yeah. There's some of that. (laughs) But yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of, so the passion was already there for us. We've been doing it for years at that point, just as a hobby. Yeah. And that passion got us through the nine, 10 years of really hard times. I like to chalk it up to being young and dumb, young enough that you could work those 80, 90, 100 hour weeks and dumb enough that you didn't throw in the towel when everybody else would have. And thanks for not throwing that towel. Yeah. In, yeah. Well, you know, you're also, you're not married. You don't have children. You know, that's how we spent our 20s. And I think ultimately we just believed in it. We believed in the beer we were making. We knew it was good. And the feedback we would get from the customers that were drinking, it was so positive. Like, let's keep doing this. Yeah, I mean. They love it. Well, you guys have really created a culture with your brand. That's at least that's my perception. Yeah, well, I mean, that's kind of the goal of every brand, right? You want to create a culture around it. But that wasn't intentional. That's not like we wrote out a A 12-step program (laughs) for how to create a culture around your brand. It just kind of happened. It seems like with outdoor enthusiasts. Am I right with that? I think that's pervasive for craft beer in general. Okay. There's a lot of outdoor activities, sports activities. I mean, even things like CrossFit is tied to craft beer. You know what I mean? Like there's physical activity has a tie to craft beer, I think for sure. Yeah. I think you're right though, that the green aspect of our brewery, our focus on the environment has definitely pushed like-minded people to our brand. Cyclists, runners, things like that. Yeah. I know we meet here quite often to go cycling. So, oh, I mean, you, it's just... You're uh, one of that group. Uh, I have been, yes. yeah. Awesome. So, I mean, Were you here seen, on Sunday? I was not here last uh, Sunday. <laughs> they're, they're too fast for me. But it is, without a doubt. It's our mantra that we came out of with college. I think it's hard to get through UWSP and not come out with some sort of tied to the environment. And for us, it was always Junction City. We were so poor, we couldn't do anything. But as we grew, it was, this is a focus of ours. And it may not be the wisest business decision, but that doesn't matter to us. So the tie to renewables and energy efficiencies and becoming one of these steadfast, socially conscious breweries um, really helped drive fans that are like-minded to us. And we continue that to this day. I'm a runner. I'm a snowboarder. I'm a mountain biker. All of that, 90% of my free time is spent out in the outdoors. And of course, attending UWSP, everybody's, not everybody, but the majority of people are definitely like-minded. UWSP kind of always being our home base, our home territory, that helped push that out across the nation. As these people leave and move to different parts of the nation and continue to talk about the story that was Central Waters, it kind of helped build us into the legacy brand that we're now considered. So how did you move to Amherst? (laughs) Well, I think fast forwarding on where Paul was at with the sort of history there, I purchased out Paul's original business partner in January of 2006, right? This is still in Junction City. And that was under the 
auspice that Paul and I had discussed was we got to get out of Junction City or not Junction City. We got to get out of this building. We need a larger space. Our, our original intent was not to leave Junction City, actually. We wanted to stay there. That's a funny story, too. You think that, that's probably worth telling. We were going to stay there. We had a person in Junction City with some land just as you we were coming in and had offered it to us. We discussed it with the village board and the village president at the time. This isn't a joke. Looked at us at the meeting and said, we would prefer if you left. And we went, oh, okay, we'll go. What is it in Pretty Woman? Big mistake. Yeah. yeah. Big, big, big mistake. <laughs> I guess they didn't care for the smells and the sights of the grain buckets on the street, and things like that. So be it. But yeah, so we spent 2006 on the hunt for the expansion when it was just us. And that building was falling apart around us. Actually, <laughs> well, the first like actual bring tanks we bought were these 15 barrel, what we call vertical unit tanks, like what you see here with the cone bottoms. They're taller than the building. So we had Bushman crane that we cut a hole in the roof. Bushman crane dropped them in through the holes in the roof. And then we built like a dormer over the top of them that kept out some of the rain. <laughs> some. Yeah. A, a good majority of the rain. A good majority of the yeah. rain. But it definitely rained but inside. Not all of it. <laughs> yeah. And it's fun when you cut the top of an old building open, you find out that the insulation they used was like little styrofoam beads. You remember? All, and they were just everywhere. You'd never get rid of them. They were just styrofoam beads always. So, yeah, we had to vacate the building. Plus, the railroad reinstated, reinstated the spur that went right next to the building, and you could touch the building and the train car at the same time. It was that close, right? So, those tanks would shake. And the railroad had no interest in taking culpability for any detriment to our business on that one. So it was time to go. Yeah, yeah. And I think one of the big driving factors for moving to Amherst was literally the banker. 100%. Yes. Yeah. It was Butch, Butch Pomeroy. Butch Pomeroy, International yeah. Bank of Amherst. I mean, that guy defines what a community banker is. He truly does. He met with us and pitched, said, I don't want to steal business from anybody, but if you're ever interested, we can talk. We ended up talking with him. And he directed us in areas that we didn't know existed. So economic development loans, cap services, small business development loans, areas that we could go out and these people would take seconds on mortgages or unguaranteed, low interest. Butch said, you go here, here, and here. Anything you can't get there, I'll fill the gap. We can build your dream. And here's how to do it. Even yeah. though you don't have the equity or collateral, we can still make it happen. And he really believed in us. And before that, we were with a community bank that wasn't a community banker. It was pushing for personal profit rather than growth of the community and support of the community. So when we met up with Butch, it turned fantastic. And in the long run, it was the smartest thing he could do. He's made a lot of money off of us. And the community has developed a great tax base from us. We've helped put Amherst on the map. But Butch really... Back in the 2000s, we didn't know this stuff existed because, you know, we're kids. We're brewers. I mean, we were doing what we were passionate about. It took all of our time. The internet wasn't around. How do you hear about this stuff? Somebody needs to tell you. And if your banker's not telling you that, how do you find out? Uh -huh. no. <laughs> so you don't. So it really took a banker who cared about growing and making his community better. Yeah, community before personal profits. Yeah, he was the one that put us in touch with all that stuff. Yeah. I mean... Cap Services was instrumental in this for us. Absolutely. We wouldn't be here without Butch Pomeroy. For, I mean, we wouldn't be in this space. We wouldn't be in this yeah. without him. What a great tribute. Yeah, absolutely. Was he a product fan as well? Oh, yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. 
And I think my favorite story after we made that move here, I was at the local grocery store in town. And this was early. Like we had just moved here. We had just announced it. We were here doing something. I'm standing in line and the people in front of me are talking about Central Waters. They don't know who I am. And they're saying, hey, did you hear that our brewery is moving to town? Our brewery is the way they phrase it, right? And I was like, nice. we're in the right spot. Yep. We always joke the coffee shop here in town was an early customer of ours. And Amherst on a Friday when you're doing deliveries, you can't find a parking spot downtown. That four-way stop gets pretty busy. So you'd have to park half a block away from it and you'd be wheeling that dolly down the street with six cases stacked up on it and everybody waves. And to this day, you drive through town and even if it's the one finger off the steering wheel, everybody waves in this town. You see that and it's just like, that's a community. It's not a village, it's not a city, it's a community. And we want to be a part of that. We want to be an integral part of a community. And, and we could have gone anywhere. Rapids was farming us. Point was farming us. Wausau was farming us. Marshfield. You know, Marshfield. Yeah. And no matter where we went, I don't think that we would have been as happy as we are here. There's no doubt you guys are in the right place. You're home. Yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. You know, it's a little bit, people ask me all the time, why are you in Amherst? You're in the middle of nowhere. And you can make an argument that there'd be an advantage now to be in a larger community just because of your tap room and there'd be more people around. That's an argument that could be made. But you have to remember back then, tap rooms were not a thing. Even when we built this place, we didn't build this place with a tap room. This is all a later addition. But I think being in a small town really drives the aura of this being a destination space home. Like that's what this is. We're a destination brewery. And being in a small place helps that. Well, speaking of destinations, as with every All About the Car podcast, we always break away halfway through and visit an interesting destination. And we're going to keep it in the view of beer at this point, and we're going to go to the National Brewery Museum in Potosi. Brian, you've been there. I've been there several times. This is your passion as well. Yeah, absolutely. I love craft beer. <laughs> we try to find as many different uh, breweries that we can. And the Potosi Brewing Company really has come a long ways. My wife, back when she was a young girl, actually played in the Potosi Brewery when it was ruins. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. How far are we talking? Where is Potosi? It's in southwest Wisconsin, down by Dubuque, Iowa, so about three hours from here. Okay, so we're making quite the road trip here. <laughs> and there's a museum there as well. Yep, the National Brewery Museum is down in Potosi, which is kind of ironic. You think of Milwaukee or you think of St. Louis as the brewing capital of the world, and little old Potosi of 700 people has the National Brewery Museum right there. Nice. You guys have anything to say about the museum? Have you been there? Any interest in that? Oh, we've been to uh, Potosi a bunch. They used to have a beer festival. I'm trying to remember if they still have they that still or if that's every year. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We used to go there for that every year. So, yeah. Very, very familiar with the Potosi brand and what they're doing down there. Yeah. They're good people. Well, there's another good destination that goes on my list of places and things to see and places to go in Wisconsin. And I'm definitely going to get back there someday. Well, back to our Central Waters Brewing in Amherst, Wisconsin, and we've talked about what was then, but let's talk a little bit more now about what is now. So when we visit your tap room, which I do frequently and love it, you've got some old favorites here that you brew all the time. And why are those favorites and what are they? Well, you know, you'd be talking about what we would describe as our core brand portfolio, right? So you're talking about Mud Puppy Porter. Wisconsin Red, Honey Blonde, Rift, IPA, Satin Solitude, Imperial Stout, 
Shine On. I feel like I'm missing one. HHG. HHG Pale Ale. Thank you. One of my yes. favorites. <laughs> yes, yes. HHG. So that's what we would refer to as our core brand. These are the brands that we make year-round. Mud Puppy Porter, we've been making that from the very beginning. Of all of those, the two that we've been making the whole time are Mud Puppy Porter and the Wisconsin Red. Those two have never left the year-round portfolio for us at all. Mud Puppy is still our top seller in the market. Although Honey Blonde's making a pretty strong case to take that over here shortly. But I mean, that's what, since Paul and I have been doing this, the craft beer industry has evolved and changed so many times and so drastically. Uh, We were just talking about this a couple months back and something that I think is like heartening for me. Coming from an industry when we started, we had like four beers. You might make a fifth at some point throughout the year. And we used to rotate back then, it was called Solstice Imperial Stout and Lac du Bay, which was our first. India Pale Ale, right? Those were seasons. We would rotate them back and forth. Those were simple days. That's all you really needed in the market was three or four beers, and it was great. And we started doing barrel-aging beers. And I guess that was 2001 when we first started that kind of group. So we had a barrel-aging portfolio, and then you had your core brand of beers, and that was it. And then it keeps evolving. It keeps growing. And suddenly, more breweries are popping up, and there's all these crazy styles, and people are putting donuts and breakfast cereal into beer or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> And then you're kind of forced to be like, okay, well, something that we talk about a lot is as a brewery that's now 25 years old, and I've seen this happen with other brands, it is really, really easy to stop becoming relevant and become just an old and in-the-way brewery. You don't really want to fall into that category. So we made conscious efforts to adjust our portfolio to create new and exciting beers staying with the trends or trying to create trends you're trying to do fun new things so now we have kind of like we have seasonals and we have two other categories you have our barrel age category and then we have what we call our sort of high tier can series which is constantly rotating beers that we drop one time in a month and then it's gone and that's where we kind of play around and experiment it's tiring it's fatiguing production it's fatiguing on sales staff oh gosh you know here we're because you never know if it's going to work or not, right? And then invariably, you're going to get a couple every year that are like duds, so like nobody wants it. And you're trying <laughs> to figure out how to get it off the shelf. Last year, however, the core brands continued to grow for us. And we're seeing that across the industry right now, that that core portfolio of beer for craft brands are the ones that are still holding. And that's why you keep them. That's why you have it. Makes them. sense. Because that's what people are coming here for. Like They know Honey Blonde. They know Mud Puppy. They know they like it. That's what they're going to drink. People are coming back, I feel like, to that core. And that's so heartening to see. Awesome. It is watching the industry kind of come full circle. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. as things get crazier, at the same time, they get simpler. It's almost yeah. like infancy, teenage years, and you're putting breakfast cereal in the beers. And then, you know, <laughs> now we're becoming adults and everybody's kind of coming back around. So it's yeah. interesting. You got to stay right on the edge of it, don't you? <laughs> yeah. You, do. yeah. yeah, you really yeah. do. You have to constantly push yourself. So the craft industry has just exploded. How many breweries are in the state? Uh, do you know our state count? Last time I checked was a year or so ago, and we were over 220. Yeah. So I was going to say it was 210, 220, yeah, something like that. 220 was the last count I, that I took. Those numbers are constantly changing, and it's hard to stay on top of it. The numbers are scary. When we got into this, there was roughly a little over 1,000 breweries in the U.S. Nowadays, there's close to 10,000. So we hit about a five-year period where there was, on average, two breweries opening a day. So over 700 openings per year. It's insane. I mean, you can't go to any small town anymore and not find a brewery, which is for the consumer. It's cool. You know, it's turned beer tourism into a hobby. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Which is great. We love seeing it. And for our entire existence, the mantra of the rising tide floats all boats. 
quality is the only concern that we have in the industry is making sure that everybody who opens does their best to produce quality product. And that's something that we've hung our hat on to make sure that we take lessons that we've had and we learn from them and we improve. Constant improvement is a goal and a necessity, not only at Central Waters, but in the industry. So as this industry is exploding, it's important that every brewery focuses on that to make sure that this tide is bringing everybody up instead of down. Yeah. And the distribution game just gets more difficult as oh, there's your relationships, like you were t- saying earlier, those you got where they a thousand in. different styles of beer. Yeah. That's which one. Do you, that's why there's which so one important. does do they recommend? Yeah. Or also, you have to think you're taking. There are a finite number of people that consume alcohol. Of that, there's a finite, generally speaking, a finite number of people that are consuming beer as their beverage of choice. So you just keep slicing that pie up thinner. You, know, you can open up a bunch of breweries, but you're not increasing the amount of draft lines in the market. You're not increasing the amount of available shelf space at any given convenience store or grocery store. So it's our job to preserve those spots with our brand. Because if you don't have the relationship with that account and a new brand comes in, they go, well, I just take off that central waters when I don't really know those guys or whatever. Well, and same holds true for every hot trend. We saw craft beer exploding and taking over more and more shelf space in every retailer. And then seltzer came out. And started taking the craft space. And seltzer eats into that craft space. Yeah. So That's disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've never understood that one. Yeah. It's like Alka-Seltzer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Modern day Zima. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah, That's a, what it is. Yep. yep. Flash to the best. <laughs> yeah. I yep. gotta say, I kind of like ours. ours is all right and you know that's funny this speaks to what this industry is like that's making a hard seltzer wasn't exactly like the forefront of our plans that's why we didn't do it until later on but you kind of get cornered into having to make some of these products to stay relevant there's a segment that like love it or i mean i got noticed from a a large grocery chain in the state as seltzers were booming and they let everybody know we're going to be removing craft shelf space to make room for the seltzer category if you make a seltzer, we will preserve your craft space. If you're a brewery without that doesn't make a hard seltzer, that's where the space is going to come from. I guess we're making a seltzer. Yeah, let's figure it out. Let's <laughs> I mean, figure, it let's out. figure it out and do it. <laughs> so, I mean, and now seltzers are taking a huge downturn. They're not nearly as popular as they used to be. So the industry is constantly changing. Well, let's talk about Milwaukee. Sure. This is something new and great. Newer, I should say. Talk to us about Milwaukee. How much time do you spend in Milwaukee and why do you go there? Well, like how it started? Yeah, you're in Milwaukee now. Yep. In yep. the uh, former Pabst Pilot House is what I my research has shown. Yeah. yeah. Haven't yeah. been there yet. Plan to be there. It's a beautiful space. Yeah. yeah. Incredible building, without a doubt. So yeah, we're actually located in an old Methodist church, the old Pabst Brewing Complex. Pabst abandoned that complex back in the 90s. They became a contract brewer, so they didn't have a physical brewery anymore and contracted with Miller to make all of their product. Basically, 20 years later, they decided to make sort of a homecoming. And their idea was, we're going to put this pilot brewery into Milwaukee and come back and lease the old church that they had and turn it into a brew pub. Their plan was to launch that and then eventually open one up in every major city in the nation. So originally they planned over 50 of them. First one took off and they didn't build another one. So, oh, wow. <laughs> but a lot of things happened. So COVID hit, obviously, shortly, a year or two after they opened. 
That changed a lot of things. Yeah, changed, changed a lot of things. Yes, it did. Yeah, there's a lot of things that kind of went against him when they opened that space because Juno Avenue, which is the only street you can, or one of the only streets you can really get to that space, was under construction almost the entire time that yep. they were open. Yeah, and that street was closed. You know, so you kind of had it. It wasn't really easy, and that's the downside of that space. There's no parking. Yeah. Yeah. Most of the time that they were open, they were still redeveloping what is called the brewery district. That was really working against them. And I think when COVID hit, that was the nail in their coffin there. So they actually uh, approached us to see if we'd be interested in subleasing. And Anello and I had been kicking around the idea for years about opening a second satellite location. Okay, so this had been in your sights well, for a while. It wasn't a part of the business plan in 2021. You know what I mean? Like, uh, it was like, because, you know, it's 2021 or just coming out, you know, it was rough years. We're like, let's just focus on keeping our brand relevant and staying in business type of attitude. But yeah, like prior to COVID, anytime there'd be a property that would come up, we'd check it out, scope it out, talk about it, try to weigh the pros and cons. Is it doable? And nothing ever really screamed out to us and said, this is your space. Open it. What were your ties with Milwaukee? What took you there? Well, what took us there for this was the email from Pabst asking us to get okay. <laughs> take it over. <laughs> yeah, we weren't tied to, like, we had, I mean, we talked about, is Madison a place to open up a satellite? Is it Eau Claire? Is it Appleton? Is it Milwaukee? There's all kinds of opportunities for that. For me personally, it's my hometown. Okay. That's so, where I'm yeah. from originally. So I've got a lot of ties to that as being where I grew up. But also, Milwaukee is our largest sales market in the state of Wisconsin. So we're all relevant brand in that city already so so it was when, a natural choice well yeah really? we went down there and looked at it. i mean i was familiar with the space and where it is because i grew up down there and of course you have the brewery district growing you have the deer district which is right next door so Pfizer form the bucks home stadium is about four blocks away it's also where marquette plays their game so we get a lot of that traffic from Pfizer, and they're growing the deer district there's a huge huge hotel going up there's all kinds of things happening down there so the venue is great. The space is unique. We walked in. It's like, okay, there's a beautiful brewery already in here. Yeah. <laughs> there's a full functioning kitchen for a restaurant already here. Basically, all we got to do is redecorate this place. Our okay. Startup costs were minimal. So you're less concerned about the bottom line right away because A, we're leasing the place. And B, our startup costs were pretty much non-existent. Some renovations and that was it. So all the equipment was there, ready to go turnkey stuff you know and you can't beat that so at the second location a little distance away did your leadership team have to grow a little bit or how does this work with you guys we had to build a good team down there okay that was the integral part we knew that we're young guys i mean we have families yeah so it's we got young kids we got yeah yeah so first thing we got to do is pitch to the families <laughs> yeah I mean, we got to get them on board Luckily, we both have very supportive wives. I mean, they knew what they were getting into when they married us, but they've been uh, supportive along the way and really helped uh, get us to where we are with all of our life. Paul and I were married far longer, or before we married our wives, Paul and I were married. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's yeah. 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 Because there's also brewing that takes place in Milwaukee that's different than here. Yeah. That was the idea that Paul and I kind of hashed out there was... To make this place work, it doesn't make sense for it to make the same beers that we make in Amherst. There's no way Milwaukee can do production as cost-effectively as we can up here. Down there, we're running at 25, 30 cans a minute at fastest. Up here, we're running at 200. The economy of scale makes us much more efficient in Amherst. So that was the goal when we were hashing these ideas out, was this is an R&D facility. 
So it's when we were hiring a brewer, it was, you don't make anything that we're doing in Amherst. And what we'd like to do is pull some of what you're doing, the big hits, the winners, we're going to pull those up and put those into full production and distribute those out to our distribution points. So you go down to Milwaukee. I mean, we pull all those beers up here for retail as well, but they're not brewing Mud Puppy down there. They're not doing a Honey Blonde. So they're doing all different styles, stuff that we're not doing in Amherst so that we're not conflicting and really just staying ahead of developments and ingredients and processes. And it gives us the flexibility that we don't have on a large scale brew house up here and the retail market to try it all out on. So, yeah, it's... So I think you're probably driving to Milwaukee in a little bit better vehicles, right? (laughs) (laughs) This is all Paul. Paul's the one that does the (laughs) weekly trips. It's somebody from production that handles that. Yeah, so me and one other guy kind of switch off every other week, roughly. We head down there. We haul beer from up here down there. So we want those flagships, the core brands available at that brewery all the time. And then we want that fun stuff available up here as well so that you can visit either brewery and get a full lineup of the core brands and the fun stuff that we're piloting. So yeah, we head down once a week. We help the brewer in the canning run, do some light maintenance. And in fact, I'm heading, uh, me and the other guy are heading down right after this podcast for an overnight. And we'll head down, we'll can this afternoon, do some maintenance work, and then come back tomorrow afternoon. So of course you got a topper on the pickup truck now, right? No, <laughs> we got a 20-foot trailer, enclosed trailer oh, now. Nice, yeah. nice. Life is good. Yeah. yeah, life is really good. So There's no storage in that building, so everything needs to be transported yeah. back and forth. Yeah. So that's a weekly run. So whether it's bringing cans down or ingredients down, finished beer from up here, finished beer from down there back. So it's exciting, especially for us as veterans in the industry now as as much being in this for 25 years it's invigorating which you need it's good it's still invigorating it's fantastic yeah yeah it's exciting you got one final question for you guys what's the future look like (laughs) (laughs) in three words no (laughs) where does it go from here no idea still reactive i think if you had asked us this question five years ago we where what's happening right now it's not the answer we would have given you Yeah. I mean, nobody can really predict what's going to happen in this industry. It is so volatile, just the alcoholic beverage industry in general. But I feel pretty confident to say that Central Waters is still going to be here. I hope so. (laughs) Oh, it will be. You know, I think I've kind of myself personally have changed over the years of how I view the industry and ourselves within it. I used to pay a lot of attention to everybody else. I read all the social media comments. I read all the beer review comments, right? And I've kind of morphed away from that for my own mental health, I think. And I've got a friend who was a very successful businessman who retired. And he said the advice that he got once was, mind your own business. And don't worry about what everybody else is doing. You're usually your best competition. Yeah. The problem that you do yourselves. Yeah. Yeah, that's the, the struggle of a small business, without a doubt. Us that work here inside of these four walls, we don't get out there and see what the sales team gets to see. We come in every day at 6 a.m. We get out of here whenever we get out of here. We put in long hours, long days. I'm still six days a week. But at the end of the day, yeah, in your 20s, it's easy. In your late 40s, it's not as easy. And you start to realize all these challenges and mental health and stuff that you've been pushing off for years are coming back to bite you. <laughs> you know? yeah. I'm at the same point in my life where for years I just kept my head down and pushed on and worked harder. And now it's life for me is pivoting to a new focus and a better focus. So it's, yeah, Central Waters is still a huge part of it. But yeah, I'm at the point with my family where my kids are at that age where it's just like, holy crap, they're almost gone. 
you got to step back. You got to take the time. It's amazing how your focuses change over time. And that mental health part, I think, is critical in this industry. To be successful long term, yep. most certainly. Yep. Yep. I did read somewhere a quote from one of you two guys that it's a hobby that's out of control. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we said that for years. Yeah. And, and yep. it continues that. on. It does. <laughs> well, we're does. happy that it's here in central Wisconsin. Yes. Yeah. We we're not going anywhere. Like I yeah. said, you're my heroes. <laughs> <laughs> well, as long as we have folks like you that come out and drink the product, that's all it takes. Oh, love it. Well, today's podcast will go down in history as one of my favorite episodes because we got to talk about beer. And what could be better than to learn more about Central Waters Brewing Company? Thank you, Anello and Paul, for joining us on this episode of All About the Car Podcast. For our listeners, make sure to follow Central Waters Brewing Company on Facebook and visit their website at centralwaters.com. We hope to have you right along next time on All About the Car. To listen to previous episodes, find additional resources, or to simply send us a message, head to allaboutthecarpodcast.com. We'll see you next time. <laughs>